That's our basic sin problem. Just take that little letter I right in the middle of the word sin and that's the, the issue. We, we tend to make things about ourselves. And so uh, I was following in the news the Southern Baptist Conference National Convention. Now the Southern Baptists are the biggest Protestant denomination in the country and they every couple years have what they call the Southern Baptist Conference which is a really big gathering and this year I think it was either Houston or New Orleans that hosted them and they had a lot of things on their plate one of which had to do with the issue of women pastors in their churches and uh, I don't want to get into that because that's a whole nother kettle of fish but it was interesting that in the arguments back and forth about that uh, you would hear things like uh, so I followed this kind of closely just because I'm kind of a church junkie. Uh, but uh, they, uh, the part of the argument went, well, the church would be so deprived of the gifts that these women have unless we call them to be pastors and preachers. And to me, having just said what I just said, they've got that backwards. I heard that an awful lot in churches that wanted to justify calling gay pastors too. We need the gifts of these people. Now when you read what Jesus, what just happened here in the scripture, when I read that, did you hear anything about how qualified the apostles were? Did you hear anything where Jesus said, well, you know, we really need these gifted men. They've got so many gifts and we would be so deprived in the kingdom of God if we didn't have Peter and James and John and Ath, uh, Matthew and, and so on and so forth. Never heard a word about that. Why? Because Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He qualifies the called. And until and unless we get that right, you know, we're not going to have the kind of leadership that the Lord wants in our churches. I heard somebody once say, God doesn't so much want our abilities or our disabilities as our availability. Our availability. So when we sing that last hymn in the, script, in the sermon service today, you'll be singing, send me, here I am, send me. Uh, warts and all. There was a portrait of Thomas Cromwell famous British uh, parliamentarian and prime minister in the, uh, I think, 1700s. Uh, and he had his portrait painted, and it was painted just beautifully. And he said, no, I want you to do it over, and this time, warts and all. Because <laughs> they had washed kind of his complexion clean, and he had a pretty rough, rugged, and warty complexion, I guess, and so he said, paint it again, this time warts and all. That's how Jesus takes us and uses us, warts and all. I mean, look at the disciples. You know, all kinds of political persuasions. There was a tax collector who was a collaborator with the Romans, and there was a, a zealot who was a revolutionary. Then there was, of course, Simon, uh, I mean, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Jesus qualifies the called and it's about being available to be used by him his grace is sufficient for us we just sang that too so now on to this text now that i've mentioned some things about the context 
for this scripture. Now on to the text. Jesus is giving instructions to these same 12 disciples or apostles about what it's going to mean to be a a disciple of his. And he says to them, the student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. The next one. Oh, there we go. It is enough for the student to be like their teacher and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, thank you, yeah, I need bigger print. Um, If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of the household? Well, this isn't unique to Christianity. Just about every discipline, and that's where the word disciple comes from, a disciple is somebody under the discipline of someone else or some other uh, instruction. So if you want to be an electrician, there's a process. You go to school, you learn some things, and then you're apprenticed to an electrician. If you want to be a plumber, the same kind of thing. You're apprenticed. If you want to be a doctor, you have a very rigorous internship to go through. Uh, And just about every uh, field of expertise requires a time of study, a time of preparation, and maybe even a hands-on kind of internship or apprenticeship. And that's what Jesus is talking about, you know. He says that uh, you're going to be apprenticed to me. And the student is not above the teacher, and, the, and if you expect anything to be different, then just look at me, follow me. Keep your eyes on me, because whatever happens to me, if they call the master of the household Beelzebul, which his enemies did, uh, then how are they going to treat you? Don't be surprised by that. Don't be caught off guard by that. In fact, expect it. And it's not a bad thing if you're a Christian to be known by your enemies uh, if for the right reason. Uh, Martin Luther said, and pardon me, I'm Lutheran, so I got to quote Martin Luther. Um, I just thought that was funny when you started the prelude music. What was the first song you played? No, no, not, not you, but the behind you. A mighty, a mighty fortress is our God. That's the Lutheran anthem, right? I just kind of laughed at that and just about, I, I got stopped on my way. I was up to thank you for that. A mighty fortress is our God, hymn by uh, Martin Luther. So Martin Luther once said, peace if possible, but the truth at any rate. Peace if possible, but the truth at any rate. And so if they treated Jesus a certain way, expect that you will be too. Right after that, Jesus says to us, so do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Now one of the most common assurances we have in the scriptures is that very one, be not afraid. Be not afraid, be not afraid. Somebody told me just this last week that it's mentioned 
365 times, one for every day of the year in the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid. Be not afraid. And a lot of times the reason for being not afraid is for I am with you. Be not afraid for I am with you. In this case, there's a little different twist on it and I want to bring that out. He says, go back to that if you would. Be not afraid for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. So what does that have to do with being not afraid? There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed uh, or hidden that will not be made known. Well, I think simply this. There's an acronym that I like about the word fear, F-E-A-R, fear. False evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. So many of the things we're afraid of are vapors and mist and dust in the wind, things we don't really need to be afraid of. There are things in the world, of course, really to be afraid of, but uh, among them, we tend to be afraid of a lot of things that are just not real and will be disclosed as being not real, will be made known as being empty threats to us. Things just boogeymen to just scare us in the night, but they're not real. We'll find out there are no monsters hidden in the closet. There are no monsters under the bed. A lot of things in our life that we don't need to be afraid of, and yet we are. I recently met somebody who just kept saying, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, and I think she talked herself into being quite afraid. And the things she was afraid about, I, I could see anyway, were not real. They, they weren't things worth being afraid of. Maybe a little nervous because they were new. But she didn't need to be crippled and paralyzed by her fears, and she was. When Adam was small, I'll tell you this story on him, uh, and I would put him to bed we had a ritual that we went through. He was at the age in life, maybe two, three years old, where developmentally little children begin to have nightmares or night terrors. And the reason for that, I believe, is that psychologically they're becoming more aware of the bigness of the world. And, and when they become more aware of the bigness of the world, that's a great big world out there, they also at the same time become aware of their own vulnerability or their own smallness. And so they begin to have nightmares and night terrors, boogeymen in the night. And so we established a ritual when we went to bed. We took his little plastic wiffle ball bat and we went under the bed and we chased the monsters out. We opened the closet door and we beat on the clothes in there and we chased the monsters out chased them out of the room, put them out into the hallway, and then we sealed the doorway with the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You can't come in here tonight. Now, that may seem silly, but to a little child, that was very real, and the benefit of that is that it gave him a sense that he had a God who was greater 
than the boogeyman in his life. He had a God who would protect him in the night. Uh, there's a great old Celtic prayer that says, from ghoulies and ghosties and long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night, good Lord, deliver us. <laughs> so he, had, he grew up with the sense then that these ghoulies and ghosties, long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night were not things he needed to be afraid of. Quoting Martin Luther again, you know, in Genesis chapter 2, when the Adam and Eve sin, and then it says, they hear the sound of the Lord in the garden, in the cool of the evening. And what did they do? It says they were afraid, and they hid, because they were naked. They were vulnerable. Martin Luther's commentary about that, he says, could be that all they heard was the sound of leaves blowing in the wind or rustling in a bush. They didn't used to be afraid of that because they were sinless. But once they had sinned and fallen out of a relationship with God, things like that scared them. You ever walk down a street or in a park or in an alley uh, at night in the dark and you hear something? off to your side and it startles you and all of a sudden every nerve is alert. That could be all that Adam and Eve heard uh, is the sound of the Lord in the garden and it scared them. So false evidence appearing real. So when the scripture says do not fear, do not fear because uh, uh, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be known. God will reveal to us what the empty threats are. In fact, that's a good prayer. Lord, you know, with the fears that I have and the anxieties that I have, reveal to me what here I need to entrust to you, what is false here and what is real. Sort that out for me because I walk by faith, not by sight. Make it known to me. Okay, now let's move along. Uh, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ears, proclaim from the roofs. Move along. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, Jesus commissions disciples to speak in his name. Promises his, his spirit who will even give us the words to speak. Uh, and he asks us to testify to him in the coming of the kingdom of God. And not be afraid of what people can do to us because they cannot kill, they may kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Be afraid, rather, of him who has the power, the authority, the ultimate authority. Now, that may seem like a very scary passage. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, we tend to want to make God just a great, big, warm, grandfatherly presence, you know. Um, but God is... Again, I'm going to quote Luther, but this is from the, the Lutheran Catechism explaining the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? Luther asks. 
And he answers it, you shall fear, love, and trust God above anything else. You should fear, love, and trust God above anything else. It included the word fear, which we often want to kind of even water that down to just reverence and respect. And it is reverence and respect. But there's the sense in which, you know, the fear of God, that is knowing that we are accountable to God, should give us pause. If we're on a sinful path, should give us pause if we're being seduced by the world. Should give us pause to repent and live in repentance, daily repentance, always returning to the cross, always returning to the cross. We make the mistake, I want to get over here to the cross to do this, we make the mistake of thinking that Growth in Christ means that you and I become better and better and better people along some progression to perfection. I want to give you a different way of thinking about that. Christian growth rather consists in this, a constant return to the cross. A constant return to the cross. And in the beginning of our walk with Christ, maybe this return is just a little return. A little thing that I lay at the foot of the cross. But as we grow in Christ, what happens? More and more of our life is returned to the cross. More and more of the skeletons in our closet. More and more of the dark and secret things we lay before God. It's best put by John the Baptist, whose disciples came to him and said, everybody's leaving and going to this Jesus who you baptized. What did John say? He must increase, but I must decrease. I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. So we return to the cross and it becomes more and more and more of our lives until Christ is all in all. St. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. He said, for to me to live is Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what I'm talking about talking about Christ becoming more and more and more and more. Let's move on. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. The sovereignty of God protects us. I want to tell you a story about the sovereignty of God, uh, and it just was from this last Thursday night. I took a grandson to a movie in Haver, which is 30 miles north of Big Sandy. We went and saw the Transformers movie. And if you wonder what it was like, if you've ever seen a Transformers movie, it was like that. (laughs) They're all the same. So if you've seen one, you've seen them all. It was like that. So it's 11 o'clock and I'm on my way home and it's very dark. I had the low beams on in my car. And the reason I say that is because 10 miles south of Haver is a little cluster of houses that used to be a long time ago a railroad stop and it was called Laredo. It ain't much, but there's about a dozen houses there. 
I don't think it's even incorporated. It's just a, an unincorporated part of Hill County. As I was driving along the road, all of a sudden, I'm daydreaming, you know. <laughs> I love that about California, Montana highways. You can drive and daydream. Can't do that in big cities. So all of a sudden, there's a lady in my lane. She's on foot and she's in my lane. My lights light her up and she's waving her arms like this. And I swerve around her at the last second, almost ran her over. It was scary. I was shaken. I pulled my car over, hung a U, and went back to see what was going on. And she's frantic, and she comes to my window, and she says that, asks if she can have a ride because they're chasing me to kill me. That's what she said. They're chasing me to kill me. She's crying, she's shaking. I say, jump in. She gets in the car, she's crying, she's shaking. I ask her her name, and I say, let's get out of here then. So I got back on the road and uh, turned around and headed to Big Sandy. Uh, she sa asks, I ask, where do you live? Where are you going? Where do you want to go? She says, Great Falls, that she has family there, and that's where her home is. And she said she's 27 years old, and she gave me her name, and she even named the person that had threatened to kill her. Um, and uh, I don't know what to make of this. This is not like this happens to me very often, <laughs> you know. So uh, I get to Big Sandy, and I pull into our garage, and then she gets out, and she follows me into the house, and now I've got to explain this to my wife why this 27-year-old woman is standing there and, and uh, just what her story is. And my wife, who uh, is the sane one in our family, she, she says, well, let's call 911. Call the police. Well, we have a deputy sheriff uh, right next door, literally. And uh, so I called dispatch for Shoto County and they got Dennis to come over to our house. He pulls in with his cruiser into our driveway, comes inside, takes her story, and she's not all there. I mean, she's very animated with her arms and her speech is just pouring out of her, and it's very random. It's very convoluted. I, I asked her in the car even if she was on anything, on drugs or had been drinking, and she swore she wasn't. She did again swear that she wasn't to Dennis and my wife, but she seemed like she was, and we were convinced that she was. But still, there was this story, and it seemed real enough that she was shaking and crying that somebody was chasing her, trying to kill her. Now, you'll be disappointed that I don't really know the end of the story here. Dennis said, well, since it happened in Hill County, he's got to take her back to Hill County, where a Hill County deputy has to take her... her statement and make a report that, that he's not the right person to do that. So he called Hill County Sheriff's Department. They sent somebody to meet him, uh, and uh, he took her. My wife packed a lot of food for her, and she ate a ton of food before she even left our house. But my wife packed a, a go bag for her. Her last word to us is, can I have that banana? <laughs> uh, she was hungry. I don't know how the story turned out. I, I have no idea. We were going to make a, a reservation for her at a little motel in Big Sandy, but uh, Dennis said Hill County's got the resources. They can put her in a motel and have her. So I'm hoping that's what happened, but I don't really know for sure.
What's the point? If this is about the sovereignty of God, I left Haver for just a drive home. If I'd been five minutes earlier, I never would have seen her on the road. If I'd been five minutes later, if she had, was being chased by somebody, they might have caught up with her. Or she might have been run over by a car. But instead she got me. And she was safe. I don't believe things like that are accidental. Those are what I tend to call divine coincidences. <laughs> you know, they're not accidental. If you're open to that in the course of a day, and I knew a guy who, who used to, a farmer in, out of Fort Benton who would just say, he prays every time he goes to town, just whatever happens while I'm in town, just help me to be open to whatever you've got for me today. Somebody to run into who needs an encouraging word, somebody with a problem that needs some help, whatever it happens to be, just help me to be open to whatever you bring across my path, which is, in fact, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? <laughs> there was a guy on the road beaten up, robbed, left for dead, and then along came, by divine coincidence, somebody who could help him. A couple people just walked right on by, but the Samaritan didn't. So be that. That's what Jesus says here. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. The sovereignty of God. Okay, let's move along. And, and even the very hairs on your head are numbered. God knows. God knows. <laughs> and I love what you said today. You just had a, a heart catheterization, correct? if I can pick on you, and you said the last time you were in church, one of the songs that was sung was, had this verse in it or line in it. What was it? My heart is in your hands. My heart is in your hands. So since the last time he was in worship here and today, what did he have? A heart catheterization. And the Lord had promised him, my heart, your heart is in my hands. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. So don't be afraid. No need to be afraid. I've got you. I've got you. I've got this little bracelet at home that has the words on it. I've got you. <laughs> I've got you. I've got your back. I've got you from the bottom, from the top, on either side. I've got you. Moving along. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And whoever doesn't, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Well, I want to return to this after a bit, but let's move along. Uh, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I, will not, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I had quite a discussion with somebody in a Bible study this last week where that was a problem for this person. They said, I don't understand that. I thought Jesus came to bring peace. Didn't Jesus come to bring peace? My answer to that was, he came to bring peace with God. But once we have peace with God, <laughs> now we're at enmity with the world. Now we're at odds with the world. We're not as comfortable in the world as we used to be. We're not comfortable with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times in which we live. We're not as comfortable with that anymore. We're kind of a bad fit. 
we fit in the kingdom of God, but now this other foot's in the kingdom of the world and it doesn't fit so well anymore. So peace with God may mean enmity and it will mean enmity with the world. Now we in our culture, in our society, we've had it easy, haven't we? We've really had it easy. Um, I have my whole life. Worst thing I've ever had to deal with is a few people laughing at me. You know, talk about false evidence appearing real. That's no big deal. I read last week that since the beginning of 2023, 2,500 people have been killed, Christians have been killed in Nigeria by Islamic terrorists, including 700 last week at a men's college, a Christian men's college, butchered with machetes for being Christian. We've got it easy. And yet we stand afraid so often of what other people will think of us. Jesus says, I come not to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. Now, if you read the scriptures and are aware of this particular verse, you can see it through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's there. Every time Jesus makes a move, there are those, there's division. There are those who believe and those who don't. I want to give you a perfect example of that. One of the greatest miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John, it's the resurrection of Lazarus, right? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he proves it by calling, saying, open, telling them to open the tomb, Lazarus' tomb, and saying, come out. And Lazarus does. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, you would think that at that point, anybody there would have said, thanks be to God. And there were. There was a great multitude that praised him. In fact, the next scripture, the next chapter begins uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. And many of the crowds were there simply because they'd heard about this raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they were there praising God. But right after that, you also read this little verse. But there were some who went to the chief priests and Pharisees and told them what had happened. (laughs) So there were some who narked on Jesus right there. They saw the same thing everybody else did, but their response was, I'd better go inform on him. So... This business of Jesus coming to bring a sword cuts right through his ministry and his life. And it cuts right through the the book of Acts, which is the book of the church. And it cuts right through the history of the church. And it should cut right through our own personal histories and our own personal walk with Christ. That confessing him is risky business. That confessing him will make a difference, a difference that will not always be received well by the people around us. Now, the next scripture says uh, something that's really tough to hear, I think. For I have come to turn a man against his father and daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. 
loyalty to Jesus is the uh, litmus test for all our other loyalties. It is the core loyalty. One of the great uh, movies I'd encourage you to watch, uh, it's an old one, it won the Best Picture Academy Award in 1960 called A Man for All Seasons. And there's a great play that's called A Man for All Seasons, and I've got that play. And, and because my wife and I were talking about it, I got it off the bookshelf, and it's laying on the coffee table at home, and I've got pages dog-eared and, and lines highlighted. And there's one place in there where Sir Thomas More, who's the main character, uh, he's eventually executed, beheaded by Henry VIII. He's loyal to the church, which was the Catholic church. There, hadn't, there wasn't an Anglican church there yet, and there were no Protestant churches. This was really in the middle of the Reformation. And uh, he believes in the supremacy of the Pope, the primacy of the Pope. And of course, Henry wanted to take over the church and become the head of the church in England. And, to that, and Sir Thomas More was just... That was blasphemous. Whatever you think about that, there's this place in there where Sir Thomas More's arguing with what had been his best friend, the Duke of Norfolk. And he says to Norfolk, I am opposed to the Henry taking over the church. I am opposed because I believe it, meaning the primacy of the Pope. And then he says, not that I believe it, but I believe it. He says, I, I hope you note the difference. It, it has to do with the word I. What is central to you that is so central you wouldn't be you without it? What is so core to you that without it, you wouldn't be you? And so Thomas says, Sir Thomas More says, I believe it, but it's not a theory. I See, that's, yeah, that's the thing. Norfolk said, so you would die for a theory? And he goes, well, it's not a theory, but yes, I would, because I believe it. Not I believe it, but I believe it. There was a soldier in the Napoleonic Wars who was on a surgeon's table after a battle. And just before they cut into him, he was reported to have said to the surgeons, cut deep enough and you'll find Napoleon. If we cut deep enough into your life, who would we find? What would we find? What is so core to you that without you, Without that, you wouldn't be you. Now, Jesus uses as an illustration of that the most important human relationships of husband to wife and parent to child. Those are the core things that I know none of us would want to sacrifice. But Jesus says, well, following me, loving me is deeper. Loving me is deeper. 
even than those loyalties. And the good news is that loving him, we get all of the rest, (laughs) but in their right place. But in a right way, right relationship, in a transformative relationship. Part of the new creation. We get our husbands and wives and children and grandchildren all back again, but now in a way that's pleasing to God and glorifying to Christ. Make sense? Well, then give me an amen. Amen. Thank you.